Well, first, I'd like to thank everyone for coming out today, and particularly thank you to the organizers of this event. The title of my paper is Citizenship's Shadow, Obscene Inclusion, Abject Belonging, or the Regularities of Migrant Irregularity. If there were no borders, there would be no migrants, only mobility. Another way of saying the same would be that the elemental and elementary freedom of movement of human life as such necessarily posits a relation between the human species and the space of the planet as a whole. From this standpoint, territorially defined national states and their borders remain enduringly and irreducibly problematic. Likewise, the methodological nationalism that rationalizes this whole conjuncture of borders making migrants supplies a kind of defining horizon for migration studies as such. Migration scholarship, however critical, is implicated, I'm implicated, we're implicated, in a continuous re-reification of quote-unquote migrants as a distinct category of human mobility or mobile humanity. Thus the persistent reification of migrants and migration, even in critical migration studies, re-fetishizes and re-naturalizes the epistemological stability attributed to the so-called national state as a modular fixture of our geopolitical space. To put it somewhat differently, it's instructive to comprehend the category migrant or immigrant as perhaps the premier instance of what we might call a bordered identity. A migrant identity is literally triggered or activated through the enactment of a border across which an act of migration is said to take place. As in the well-known Chicano Liberation Movement slogan, it's not that the people in motion cross a border so much as it is the border that crosses them and thereby constitutes them as migrants. It's not the act of mobility in and of itself that constitutes migration so much as the construal of that mobility specifically as an act of border crossing. The border must be enacted somehow or another upon the more humble fact of human mobility and hence upon the body and identity of the newly anointed migrant, the juridical status and social condition that we conventionally designate migrant or immigrant, in fact signifies what is always a rather variegated and heterogeneous spectrum of juridical distinctions and social inequalities and differences. There are many types of migrants, and it is precisely the work of immigration regimes and citizenship law to hierarchically sort and rank them. Indeed, an illegal status at the scale of a nation-state's immigration law may often come to be accompanied by numerous other types of both informal and formal incorporation at other scales and within other jurisdictions. Nevertheless, it is the bordered definition of state territoriality that constitutes particular forms and expressions of human mobility as migration and classifies specific kinds of people who move as migrants. Borders make migrants. If this is true, however, then it is imperative to recognize that citizenship, too, is fundamentally a category of bordered identity. In this regard, William Walters has characterized the deportation of non-citizens as precisely a technology of citizenship. Similarly, Bridget Anderson 
Matthew Gibney and Emanuela Pauletti discuss the deportation of foreigners as a membership-defining act dedicated to asserting the value and significance of citizenship and reinforcing the distinction between citizens and non-citizens in terms of the citizenry's unconditional right to residence in the state. Thus, what is ultimately the defining condition of migrants' non-citizenship, their deportability, their susceptibility to deportation, turns out likewise to be a decisive and defining predicate in the negative of citizenship itself. However, this working definition of citizenship still implies a liberal leap of faith that seems to disregard the fullest illiberal extent of acts of sovereignty within the toolkit of liberal statecraft that have variously served to constitute and regulate citizenship. We need only be reminded of various historical examples of statutes for the denaturalization and exclusion of so-called undesirable or enemy citizens, which span from the disqualification of women from their birthright citizenship for marrying alien men, through to the mass deportation of German Jews and communists, queers and gypsies, and so on, to Nazi prison labor camps, and finally to their extermination. Hannah Arendt famously discusses this conundrum in terms of the perplexities of human rights. In Arendt's account, the abandonment and objection of stateless and therefore rightless refugees is finally only apprehensible when juxtaposed to the rightfulness of citizens, such that the abstract nakedness of being human and nothing but human is exposed as providing no durable basis for rights of any kind. Inasmuch as the stateless refugees that Arendt was contemplating were commonly no more than denaturalized and expelled former citizens, however, this same conundrum may be equally compellingly analyzed in terms of the aporias of citizenship itself. Even the non-deportability of citizens must thus be seen as merely a, a historically contingent and therefore tenuous attribute of citizenship. Indeed, as I've argued elsewhere, the deportability of non-citizens as well as the presumed non-deportability of citizens have to be seen in a continuum with detainability, and the freedom of movement would necessarily have to be apprehensible simultaneously in opposition not only to deportation and other forms of forced movement, but also coercive immobilization, and the full range of diverse forms of captivity and confinement. Indeed, the defining U.S. immigration law of the Cold War era, the McCarran-Walter Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, notoriously provided for not only the exclusion or deportation of non-citizen alleged communists as a matter of internal security, but also even the denaturalization of naturalized citizen subversives. Their citizenship was deemed to be reversible, retractable. Furthermore, the metaphysics of the so-called war on terror have reanimated a logic of security, now rather more globalist in scope, with regard to a variety of putative enemies who may be located anywhere on the face of the earth distinguished very notably by their transnational mobility. Thus, contemporary securitarianism's enemies may be found inside or outside a state's borders, and may be foreigners or so-called homegrown citizens, elusive secret agents, simply waiting to be detonated, hereafter refigured as moving targets scheduled for liquidation by executive order. Yet long before the official state of emergency, 
of the war on terror, certain categories of criminal citizens were already being refashioned in various ways, and not exclusively in the United States, as the non-person targets for a new enemy penology, in, uh, in the words of uh, Susanna Krasman. Thus, we must always bear in mind that citizens have always been, and continue to be, among those designated as the enemies of the state. Nevertheless, the substantive meanings of citizenship have indeed come to be fundamentally configured through notions of belonging to a larger polity, a polity of the sort that is decisively constituted through its relationship to the borders of a juridical political space. It's precisely the spatial affiliation, after all, that contributes to presumptively treating citizens' bordered belonging as a natural predictor of political allegiance. Thus it seems indisputable that if there were no borders, there would be no citizens. Citizenship, much like the alienage of migrants, can never be completely disarticulated from its configuration as a juridical status, however much some may seek to invoke citizenship as a more diffuse metaphor for broader conceptions of belonging, it necessarily and inextricably entails a socio-political relation to the state. Furthermore, citizenship and alienage alike signify socio-political and juridical identities that are intrinsically spatialized configured always in relation to the space of a territorially defined state as delineated by its borders. The standard and pervasive conceit of liberal political theory and practice is that citizenship is therefore best apprehensible as a kind of membership within a bounded polity that secures various liberties, rights, entitlements, and prerogatives to those who are legitimately located on the inside. Uh, juridically inscribed within its legal and political order. Thus, citizenship is customarily equated with a notion of sociopolitical inclusion, and the alienage of migrants and other foreigners is understood to situate them, at least figuratively, to various extents on the outside, and they become synonymous with the notion of greater or lesser degrees of sociopolitical exclusion, the always beleaguered stability and security of such distinctions and the always unstable division between the putative inside and outside that borders are purported to ensure predictably get deployed to underwrite and authorize a precisely securitarian rationality. Indeed, liberal political theorists overwhelmingly concur that there can be no prospect for democracy or justice without borders. What happens, however, when the very national scale of citizenship is inadequate to provide redress for the claims to rights, representation, recognition, retribution, and redistribution that may arise from the predicaments of people whose exploitation, oppression, or disenfranchisement have been perpetrated, at least in part, on a transnational scale? Nancy Fraser has recently reflected on the theme of social exclusion, as she puts it, and what she calls the geographical or spatial scales of justice. When questions of justice are posited in terms of a presupposed spatial scale that corresponds to the modern territorial nation-state, Fraser contends, the effect, however unwitting, is to ratify an answer that goes by default, for which the scale of justice is, so to speak, distinctly Westphalian. What's more vexing 
about such methodologically nationalist approaches to the question of justice, however, is that they render the very concept, for instance, of the social exclusion of the global poor, to use her phrase, they render this very concept of the social exclusion of the global poor, whose grievances may need to be configured transnationally, to be effectively oxymoronic and misframes their conditions of social exclusion in a manner that can only become legible as an internal and domestic concern within the bounded space of a territorially defined state. Thus, through this sort of misframing of first-order injustices, Fraser continues, by presupposing that the Westphalian frame is the only legitimate framing of questions of justice, we commit a special kind of meta-injustice, as she puts it, inasmuch as we foreclose by definition the very possibility of trans-border social exclusion. This metapolitical injustice arises in addition to the ordinary injustices that more fittingly correspond to a pre-given bounded polity. As a result, uh, as a result of the very act of dividing political space into bounded polity polities, in this respect, an uncritical posture with respect to the methodological nationalism may perpetrate a superadded injustice by systematically rendering certain forms of transnational or cross-border injustice analytically unrecognizable. The social exclusion of the global poor, Fraser contends, cannot be adequately framed in terms of the sorts of injustice that refer exclusively to political participation and legal recourse within a national state and would be rather better apprehensible on a transnational scale. In an ever-increasing proliferation of examples, the very questions of justice and injustice are literally unanswerable to the extent that they remain radically circumscribed and degraded to a socio-spatial and geopolitical scale that routinely falls back on citizenship in a bounded polity as its definitive standard of evaluation. Now, in contrast to this pervasive liberal conceit about the necessity of borders, um, and the construction of questions of justice in terms of inclusion and exclusion, much of my own previous work has been dedicated to problematizing any simplistic binary of inclusion and exclusion, in part through the elaboration of concepts such as, the in, uh, such as inclusion through illegalization and inclusion through exclusion. Notably, Fraser eventually deconstructs her own working lexicon in the essay that I'm referring to by displacing the notion of the social exclusion of the global poor in favor of a more frank acknowledgement of active processes of exploitation and deprivation, proposing the alternate concept of a transnational precariat as a term that she considers to have the virtue of encompassing varying degrees and forms of inclusion-exclusion. Now, once we permit for a more dialectical process, in which the inclusion and exclusion of migrants may be understood to be simultaneous and mutually constitutive, it also becomes possible to discern that borders themselves are not inert, fixed, or coherent things, so much as they are sociopolitical relations, the, the agonistic coherence and ostensible fixity of which are always emergent from active processes of objectification and fetishization, that is to say, borders are in fact the always contingent determinations of indeterminate 
relations of struggle. Historically, borders notably served to define the boundaries between the spatial jurisdictions of states, whether national or imperial, in ways that were principally and eminently military, or at least potentially so. In contrast, borders today seem to have become inseparable from migration, inextricable from migration, even perhaps predominantly concerned with and oriented to migration. As William Walters incisively notes, the border has become a privileged signifier. It operates as a sort of meta-concept that condenses a whole set of negative meanings, including illegal immigration. At the same time, the border holds out the promise of a solution to these hazards. The distinction between a guarded and protected so-called domestic space for us on the one hand and the enemy beyond the borders on the other has been transposed into an analogous but significantly different distinction now between a comparably domestic space for us, which presumptively ought to be one of natal entitlement and nativist protection, and the foreigners who may be deemed to properly belong elsewhere beyond the borders, but who nevertheless routinely violate these very borders and assert their presence within the space defined by those boundaries. Borders, then, are most salient inasmuch as they are perceived to be always already violated, and thus perpetually inadequate or dysfunctional, if not frankly corrupted. And this is true in spite of ever-increasing border securitization. Indeed, the securitization of borders only intensifies the perception that they are in fact always insecure, supplying the premier site for staging the perpetual demand for more securitization. No number of border zone apprehensions or deportations could ever be sufficient to sustain the semblance of security, but rather only the seeming verification of a thankless and relentless task, a job that can never be completed, despite the ideological construction and affirmation of borders as the form of a kind of enclosure, therefore, they are operative primarily as equivocal sites or amorphous zones of permeability, perforation, transgression, and thereby encounter and exchange. In spite of the appearance of inadequacy or dysfunction, however, borders serve quite effectively and predictably as filters, filters for the unequal exchange of various forms of value. The filtering character of borders is especially visible in those instances where the intensified enforcement of border crossings of easiest passage relegates illegalized migrant mobilities into zones of more severe hardship and potentially lethal passage. In a de facto process of artificial selection, those deadly obstacle courses serve to sort out the most able-bodied, disproportionately favoring the younger, stronger, and healthier among prospective labor migrants. The militarization and ostensible fortification of borders, furthermore, proved to be much more reliable for enacting a strategy of capture than to function as mere technologies of exclusion. Once migrants have successfully navigated their ways across such borders, the onerous risks and costs of departing and later attempting to cross yet again become inordinately prohibitive. Although they provide a context for exchange, therefore, borders are enduringly productive. Borders, in this sense, may be considered to be a kind of means of production for the production of space, or indeed the production of difference in space, the production of spatial difference. 
as enactments in and upon space, like many, uh, like any means of production, borders must themselves be produced and continuously reproduced, yet they are generative of larger spaces differentiated through the relations that borders organize and regiment, facilitate, or obstruct. Nonetheless, the differences that borders appear to naturalize between us and them, between here and there, are in fact generated precisely by the incapacity of borders to sustain and enforce any rigid and reliable separations. Thus, we may say that borders are deployed strategically, but always operate tactically, intervening within fields of force that are constituted by a wider variety of contending energies and projects than could ever be encompassed only by state powers and their techniques of bordering. Here I have in mind above all the autonomy and subjectivity of migration as a recalcitrant and obstreperous force that precedes and exceeds any border authority's capacities for comprehensive regimentation and control. Indeed, if it is true that were there no borders, there would be no migrants, it may likewise be increasingly the case nonetheless that if there were no migrants, there would be no borders. Serhat Karakayali and Enrique Rigo, for instance, argue persuasively that the externalized and increasingly virtual borders of Europe are literally activated by migrant mobilities. Virtual borders do not exist unless they are crossed. The ubiquity of migrant mobilities comes first. The ubiquity of borders and the diverse panoply of new techniques and technologies of border policing and immigration enforcement come always as a response, a reaction formation. As Vasilisianos and Serhat Karakeali contend, the question is not who's the winner of this game, it is rather who initiates the changes to its rules. Indeed, migration regimes produce the transformation of mobility into politics. The more extravagant that border policing becomes, the more, in fact, it participates in what I have called the border spectacle, persistently and repetitively implicating the materiality of border enforcement practices in the symbolic and ideological production of a scene of exclusion that is always, in reality, inseparable from an obscene fact of subordinate inclusion. Migration studies, critical or otherwise, have long been challenged not to become ensnared in this spectacle and the fetishized reification of migrant illegality as an ostensibly self-evident natural fact. Thus, if the effort to denounce and critique border militarization and aggressively restrictive immigration policies Sorry, th thus, in the effort to denounce and critique border militarization and aggressively restrictive immigration policies, migration studies frequently risks becoming an unwitting accomplice to the spectacular task of broadcasting the one-dimensional falsehood of border enforcement as the perfect enactment of ever more seamless and hermetically sealed exclusionary borders. In other words, in our efforts, either as scholars or activists, to denounce the extremities and severities of plainly cruel modes of exclusion, we risk forfeiting the critical responsibility to also detect how regulatory regimes produce regularities. Indeed, we risk failing to see 
that migrant irregularity is itself a very regular and predictable feature of the routine and systematic functioning of border and immigration enforcement regimes. And thus we risk an unwitting complicity with the supreme monologue of the border spectacle itself by recapitulating its dominant theme of exclusion. Here, it's important to underscore that the illegalization or irregularization of migrant labor that is always a kind of subordinate incorporation may be best depicted as obscene precisely because it is not merely concealed but also selectively revealed. What constitutes the obscene is not that it remains hidden but rather that it gets exposed. Thus the spectacle of border policing stages the regulatory regime of immigration enforcement as always besieged by the inexorable invasion or inundation of illegal migrants, and in this manner routinely serves to verify precisely the regularity of irregular migrants and their obscene inclusion and the sheer banality of their abject presence within the space of the state. Their belonging may be abject, but it is finally quite mundane. If we genuinely confront the regularities of migrant irregularity, then it may be helpful to formulate our question about regulatory regimes and the regularities they produce in Foucauldian terms as a problem of biopolitics, rather than the sort of power that was customarily enacted as a right of seizure, in which the sovereign appropriates wealth as a tax or tribute, and thus takes things, takes money, takes time, and ultimately may take life itself. Foucault argues that biopower emerges without question an indispensable element in the development of capitalism as a power bent on generating forces, making them grow and ordering them, rather than one dedicated to impeding them, making them submit or destroying them. Biopower, instead, works to incite, reinforce, control, monitor, optimize, and organize the forces under it. Moreover, it exerts a positive influence on life, endeavors to administer and multiply it, subjecting it to precise controls and comprehensive regulations, a calculated management. Hence, the point about biopower for Foucault is quite emphatically that it is regulatory, and migration is explicitly included in Foucault's inventory of these new 19th century techniques for achieving the control of populations, marking the beginning of an era of biopower, as he puts it. Such a power is exercised, above all, through corrective mechanisms that distribute the living in the domain of value and utility. It has to qualify, measure, appraise, and hierarchize rather than display itself in its murderous splendor. The regularities and normalizations of biopower nevertheless are always coupled with the accompanying extremities. Foucault's suggestion of a modern form of power that invests life itself and responds to a general injunction to cultivate life, to make live, as he puts it, is always accompanied by the concomitant prerogative to let die. That's to say, this biopower includes the sorts of disregard and abandonment and retreat of power that then relegates some forms of life to extreme precarity and exposure to death, notably confronting the problem of a kind of state power that must 
preserve and foster life, but still guards its capacity to take life, to kill, to exercise its highest prerogatives by putting people to death, Foucault introduces a series of reflections on racism. Foucault makes the bold proposition that once the state functions in the biopower mode, oriented as it is to ensuring the life of a whole population, racism alone can justify the murderous function of the state. Foucault has in mind what he deems a new racism modeled on war that justifies the death function in the economy of biopower, and in this regard, modern states are obliged to use race, the elimination of races, and the purification of the race to exercise their sovereign power. Racism, in short, is the bridge that conjoins the sovereign power to kill and the biopolitical imperative to uphold and enable life, the life of a population. In contrast to a pre-modern sort of sovereignty, then, which would have discerned the alleged enemies of the state in the transgressions of individuals and subjected them to humiliating and torturous public spectacles of punishment, this distinctly biopolitical sovereignty tends to identify its enemies as whole populations, indiscriminately aggregating the members of entire distinct categories of subhuman kind, races, or other nations, which could be targeted for extermination on the precise basis of being designated a threat to the life of the nation, or even a kind of pollutant degrading the life of the species as such. Predictably, Nazism and Nazism alone serves for Foucault as the paroxysmal example. This is indubitably an intriguing and persuasive reading of the history and effectivity of racism, but inasmuch as it confines its purview to the explication of genocidal impulses and exterminationist exercises, it is one-sided. It rather flagrantly disregards the productivity of racist power and the regulatory character of racism as a biopolitical force that adjusts in Foucault's phrase, the accumulation of men to the accumulation of capital, investing and valorizing different kinds of bodies and subjecting them to a distributive, differential management of their forces. It is as if, confronting racism, Foucault disregards his own injunction to cease once and for all to describe the effects of power in purely negative terms, such as exclusion. Foucault famously proclaims, in fact, power produces it produces reality and rituals of truth. It is remarkable in this light that Foucault seems to so one-sidedly relegate racist power to a strictly repressive, exclusionary, and finally exterminationist, genocidal role. The government of migration, as I've already suggested, is inseparable from the disciplinary maximization of the potentialities and capacities of migrants as labor. Following Foucault, discipline is precisely a mechanism of power that made it possible to extract time and labor from bodies. This specifically disciplinary dimension is exercised, moreover, on individuals and their bodies, and refers to a modality of power that is aligned with individualization. However, border regimes simultaneously may be understood to differentiate populations as such, Thus, their specifically racist dimensions have to be theorized not merely in the sovereign inclinations of border regimes to perpetrate low-intensity warfare and let die, in Foucault's phrase, but also in the particular ways in which whole migratory population movements are subjected to the severities of one or another border and immigration regime precisely in order to capture, cultivate, and intensify 
the specific life force and labor power of those who migrate. Racism is an indispensable feature of this larger process of migrants' inclusion as labor subordination, much as it was, for instance, inextricable in an analogous way from the prior sociopolitical orders of slavery. Thus the systemic and intrinsic racism of the regulatory regimes that produce the extremities of cruelty and violence in the management of borders must be seen to also operate in a still more fundamental manner in the maintenance of the hierarchically ordered regularities and normalizations that come with the biopolitical mandate of borders to administer and optimize the life force of migrant border crossers as labor power. As a corollary, as a corollary to Foucault's discussion of biopolitics, Achille Mbembe has proposed the notion of necropolitics. With recourse to this concept, Mbembe, following the lead of Giorgio Agamben, seeks to reaffirm the central significance of sovereignty and thereby the exercise of a power of life and death, particularly through various manifestations of warfare, and refers to those exercises of sovereignty whose central project is the material destruction of human bodies and populations. Importantly, Mbembe's discussion thus refers us back to slavery and colonial rule more generally. In the context of the plantation, Mbembe argues, the slave condition results from a triple loss. Loss of a home, loss of rights over his or her body, and loss of political status. This triple loss is identical with absolute domination and alienation and social death. Sorry, this triple loss is identical with absolute domination, natal alienation, and social death. Hence Mbembe declares the humanity of the slave appears as the perfect figure of a shadow. And thus we are reminded that the necropolitical racial terror of slavery literally inscribed certain categories of human life as utterly expendable and exposed them to every conceivable sort of humiliation, torture, and violent death. However, we cannot help but also be reminded of the veritable economy of this system of racist power, its injunction to ruthlessly optimize the forces of life as labor, in short, its biopolitics. If the black slave was perfectly figured as the shadow of human personhood, the genuine and substantive humanity of enslaved African and African American people, uh, their productive powers, their capacities, uh, their creative capacities, were a vital foundational and motive force as the veritable, at the veritable center of modern so-called civilization. Uh, the murderous necropolitical terror of racist sovereignty was inextricable from a biopolitical regime of forced labor. Notably, Mbembe realigns much of what he distinguished, uh, much of what distinguishes biopower for Foucault as quintessential characteristics of sovereignty itself, referring to the ultimate power over life and indeed the power to brutally eradicate life, Mbembe clarifies, sovereignty means the capacity to define who matters and who does not, who is disposable and who is not. Along these lines he depicts the enactment of differential rights to differing categories of people for different purposes within the same space, as, in brief, the exercise of sovereignty. 
However, by linking this sort of distributive and differentialist ordering of life to its more murderous prerogatives and its most destructive potentialities, Mbembe's emphatic linkage between the necropolitical excesses of warfare and mass killing with the fundamentally productive regime of slave labor effectively, again, compels us to see the double character of racism as simultaneously necropolitical and biopolitical. If, as Foucault contends, racism is a premier matrix of the sovereign power of modern state formations, then it cannot be so as a, pure, as a purely necropolitical exercise in expelling and in eliminating those enemy populations deemed to be a quasi-existential threat. Racism is also central to and constitutive of the regulatory regime of biopowers, hierarchical, distributive management of the forces of life itself. Furthermore, as Mbembe notes, this same sovereignty entails an, an inherently twofold process of self-institution and self-limitation, fixing one's own limits for oneself. In short, mediating the limits between its necropolitical and biopolitical imperatives, sovereign power is always quintessentially engaged in acts of border-making, border-guarding, and border-preservation. If borders are productive of differences in material and practical ways, in short, if borders produce differentiations, then it is crucial to note that they not only involve a physics through the mobilization of various practices and technologies of bordering, but also that they sustain a definite metaphysics, one that is centrally implicated in the particularization of the political a global relation according to the universalizing and modularizing and normalizing of the nation-state form as the standard mode of territoriality of a nationalist world order. At the level of each particular border and each particular so-called national state, this metaphysics never ceases to reanimate the familiar but unrelenting zombie of methodological nationalism. Yet this metaphysics of borders also plays a role on an effectively global scale. At the global level, this metaphysics is what is at stake in what Etienne Balibar ref, um, refers to as the world configuring function of borders. This is similarly suggested by Barry Hindus in his discussion of bordered citizenship as a technology for the international management of populations, or by William Walters in his discussion of deportation as a governmental technology for the international police of aliens. Indeed, we may rem be reminded here of Hannah Arendt's memorable account of what she depicted following World War II as the new global political situation characterized by a completely organized humanity resembling a barbed wire labyrinth. Borders, as we've come to know them, do not distinguish the official outer limits of nation-state territory, do not only distinguish the, outer, the official outer limits of nation-state territory and institute the division between one nation-state space and another, but also subdivide the planet as a whole. In so doing, borders also subdivide humanity as a whole. In the shadows of this labyrinthine world of borders, as we've seen, are the multifarious bordered socio-political socio identities of the globe's denizens, refugees, migrants, and citizens alike. Borders cross everyone, including those who never cross borders. Nevertheless, it's fair to say, adapting Mbembe's formulation, that the humanity of the so-called illegal migrant assumes the perfect figure of citizenship's shadow, 
absolutely excluded juridically, but permanently ensnared within the machinations of the regime of citizenship. Extremities and regularities emerge together as the complex effects of regulatory border regimes that sustain the differential, indeed racist, management of citizenship and immigration. In citizenship's shadow, then, we may discern the perfectly predictable and routine processes of the obscene inclusion that always haunts the spectacular scene of exclusion and the rather regular production of the abject belonging of irregular or illegal migrants. And yet, the multifarious continuities between migrants and so many whose citizenship is itself more or less abject remind us that citizenship itself has the elusive and evanescent qualities of a shadow. In this regard, we would do well to critically part company with the hegemonic liberal consensus around citizenship, which Linda Bosniak has described so tellingly. Virtually everyone, here I'm quoting, virtually everyone in the debate treats citizenship as embodying the highest normative value. The term rings unmistakably with the promise of personal engagement, community well-being, and democratic fulfillment, end quote. If there were no borders, however, there would indeed be neither citizens nor migrants. Hence, we are challenged to more rigorously and consistently conceive anew the relation between the human species and the space of the planet as a whole. As with sex in Foucault's History of Sexuality, therefore, so also for citizenship, we need to consider the possibility that one day, perhaps under a different relationship among human conviviality, mobility, and the space of the planet, people will no longer quite understand how the ruses of citizenship and the power that sustains its organization were able to subject us to that austere tyranny of citizenship so that we became dedicated to the endless task of exacting our political truth from a shadow. Thank you.